The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. This morning's text is Psalms 50, so you can turn there. If you don't have one in the pew back nearby, and if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that with you when you leave as a gift from us. So we'll be in Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this. Then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church Denver. And I am glad you're here at 11 o'clock today. Um, I have a few announcements before we turn to Psalm 50, and, uh, and so here they are. First, you should have been handed a card when you walked in, and I wish I, I do have it, yes. Um, on it, it has a rather sultry title, Marriage, Singleness, and Sexuality. And so we are um, having a class on August um, 31st and September 1st here at the building to talk about those three things, marriage, singleness, and sexuality. These, um, these are hot topics in our day. They're to- hot, have always been hot topics. Um, issues that um, are at the center of uh, 
and cultural conversation right now. They're at the center, really, um, one of the things that, are, that is absolutely central. What does it mean to bear the image of God and, and, to, and to faithfully follow Him in the world? And so we want to come together for two nights, um, talk about these issues, talk about what does it mean to bear God's image in these ways? How has God designed friendship? How has God designed sex? How has God designed marriage in such a way to reflect His beauty and His goodness in the world? And so we want to encourage you to come to that class, sign up for it, um, and be here. If you are engaged or considering possibly being engaged, um, and you'd like to enter into the premarital process here at Park Church Denver, um, that process will actually begin with that seminar. And so there'll be a, um, the second night, there'll be a breakout track for those of you who are interested um, in premarital counseling, premarital process here. And uh, that will be step one in entering into that process for us as we try to help you walk alongside you as you prepare for um, the day in which you stand before God and enter into a covenant um, with another human being, which is a really insane thing to do. Um, and so um, that will be August 31st and September 1st. Beautiful and good, and yet insane if you think about it. And so um, that, that will be coming. So that card has some information. You'll find more information on our website, and you can sign up online. Um, second thing I would like to mention to you, a week from tomorrow night, um, we are hosting a uh, dessert, actually at my house, uh, for everyone who is new. Um, so we recognize, for whatever reason, a lot of people moved to Denver, Colorado in, uh, over the course of a summer. Um, and so a lot of you are new to this community, new to our church. And we'd like to just take an evening um, and tell you a little bit of our story as a church, kind of um, give you some next steps for getting involved, answer some questions that you might have uh, about our community. Um, it is a spectacular night of coffee and root beer floats and this magical thing called carrot cake, which is both healthy and delicious. And so... Um, because you're eating carrots. And so we would like to have you um, come to that. You can sign up um, online. You can also sign up immediately after the service. Over in that corner, there's an info table. Um, you can sign up there for that pastor's dessert, um, which will be August 24th from 7 to 8 p.m. Um, we would love to have you there. Last, um, if you consider Park Church your home, this is the community, the family that you belong to. We, we don't believe the church is um, supposed to be just a, a, an event that you show up for, a series of programs or classes that, that you attend, but rather we're a family, a community that, that's been given a mission by God in the midst of our city and the world. Um, and, and your responsibility as one who's been redeemed by Jesus, who's a disciple of Jesus, is to bear responsibility for the local church and in the local church. And so two ways that we like to talk about doing that here. Um, first is, is giving financially to the mission of the church. We believe that God has called um, disciples of Jesus to give and to support the mission of the church financially, um, every single one of us. Um, and secondly, we believe that God has called us to serve, to find opportunities to serve this body and this community. Um, many of you uh, were here a few, I guess it would have been a month, six weeks ago now, in which we uh, dedicated a whole bunch of babies and we committed as a community um, to, to supporting and caring for these children. One of the ways that you can do that, um, in fact, you may be called to do that, is to volunteer for Park Kids, where we need volunteers. Um, and so I want to encourage you, uh, we're, we're trying to ramp up for the fall, um, and one of the places that we need people to serve and bear responsibility for this community is downstairs in Park Kids, um, walking alongside these children, pointing them to Jesus, um, and loving them well. So if you're interested at all in serving, um, even if you're not interested, but would like to act interested, um, and be convinced um, once you act interested. Um, I want to encourage you to go downstairs after the service, um, find Melanie 
or Jason. Um, they should both be in this kind of main area. You can just ask, where's Melanie and Jason? Everybody will know where they are. Um, they kind of run that part of our church and, and would love to talk to you about the myriad of blessings and joys that come from volunteering in Park Kids. Um, and so just please consider that, um, and you can head downstairs after the service. Let's pray, and we will turn to Psalm 50. What a thing, Father, to worship a God like you. A God who showers upon us grace upon grace upon grace. Who doesn't wait for us to get our lives together, but shows up and redeems us and rescues us and shows kindness to us. A God who, despite all of our rebellions, all of the ways in which we forget you or forsake you or intentionally turn away from you, you still sing over us in delight and approval. A God who accomplishes everything necessary for our salvation. A God who commands the sun to rise in the morning, displaying your holiness and your beauty and your goodness to those who would forget you. What a thing to gather in this room and worship you. So God, I pray now as we turn and we learn from the psalmist what it means to pray to you, what it means to worship you, I'm even reconsidering together your character and your nature in the light of what you say here. God, I pray that your spirit would be among us working and speaking and transforming the way that we think about our lives and think about what it means to worship a God like this one. So come, in your name we pray, amen. Uh, This summer, we um, decided as a family that we were going to read a series of books, profound literature that was going to transform everything about our family's life. And so we went to Barnes & Noble and we looked for a series of books that would keep us occupied for the summer to read. And we landed upon um, perhaps one of the great pieces of literature of our time, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Um, those uh, Those of you who've read these series of books, you know this. Those of you who haven't, Shame on you. Just joking. Don't feel any shame at all for not reading it. Um, uh, Percy Jackson um, and the Olympians is a series of novels telling the story of Percy Jackson, son of Poseidon. Um, Percy Jackson is a, technically a demigod. Um, and, uh, and some of you right now are wondering, is this church? Um, and and uh, Percy Jackson is um, a troubled young teenager uh, who, discovers, um, who, who discovers that his father... Um, who left his family a long time ago and left because he was the god of the sea, which I guess keeps you preoccupied at times, um, discovers his father's identity, um, is sent away to demigod camp. There's a summer camp for demigods. Um, and there uh, has a wonderful summer camp experience, goes on various adventures, kills things, um, that kind of deal. Um, we were reading the first book in this series, um, and uh, Percy had just kind of discovered his, um, the, the, his, his divine father, existed. Um, And so he goes to the camp. Um, He's at the camp. You're kind of walking through his first couple of days at the camp. And you come to the first dinner scene um, here at the camp for the sons and daughters of the gods. Um, At 
dinner, they sit down and this beautiful spread and this wonderful meal is set before them. But before they're allowed to eat and they're to take a, a portion of their meal and walk to a big central fire, throw the portion of their meal into the fire, um, offer it to one of the gods. And, and there's this notable little line in the story um, in, in which Percy says, um, evidently the gods get hungry and evidently they really like barbecue. Um, and, and this is where the downside of having a father who's a pastor um, c- comes in. One, because I have to explain to my children, can't just let the story go, um, I have to explain to my children that, that God doesn't get hungry, and I, he definitely likes barbecue. But, um, <laughs> and two, I immediately burst into sermon illustration. Psalm 50 is coming. This is a perfect picture of where we're going with Psalm 50. You see, what um, what's described by the author of the Percy Jackson series um, is, is actually quite accurate as we begin to think about what we know of um, Greek mythology and the Greek religion, um, and, and even as um, the Greek religion transferred into the Roman religion as um, Rome was really, really good at co-opting the gods. Um, the, the way that this religious system worked um, is that we all want something from the gods. These powerful beings that either rule the sea or the marketplace or, or, or the, the, the farmland or whatever the things are, they're varying deities in the heavens on Mount Olympus, and we need things from them. We need blessings from them. But, but here's the other side of it. Um, they want things from us. They, after all, get hungry and they like barbecue. Um, they, they want to, to be honored. They, they need to be honored. They, they need um, quests done for them. That's the baseline of the, the very first novel in the Percy Jackson series is, is um, the gods need something done, and so they, see, they send Percy to accomplish it. Um, in one, um, one scene in the novel, he receives a, a gift from a god, and um, his friend says, well, what, what, did, what did he ask for in return? And Percy said, nothing. It was a gift. And, and his friend says, it's never a gift with the gods. If you want something from them, you must give something in return. You see, the gods are in the heavens and they're hungry and they need things. But as we consider this, as we think about this, this isn't unique to Greek mythology. It's not unique to kind of a Roman religious worldview. It's actually um, the, the baseline of every major world religion, and, and, and not even world religion. It's the, the, the baseline of oftentimes how everyone thinks about life. If, if I can just get, um, if I can just get God to do something for me, the way I can get God or the gods or karma or, or just the balance of the universe to fall into place, if I can just do enough good things, then God will give me the thing that I want. If I can just tithe enough or give enough money to the church, then God will give me what I want. I, I, I'm positive. Maybe some of us showed up this Sunday morning and said, hey, I, I'm, I, I haven't been to church in years. Mom's been, been bothering me about going to church for years. I'm going to go. And I'm going to tell mom about it. And I'm going to have a great lunch because God's going to bless me for, for going to church today. This seems to be the way oftentimes we approach the universe. We approach God. We approach the things that we desire. God must want something from me. Um, Be it me going through a religious ceremony on a Sunday, me giving my money, me telling someone about him, me voting the right direction, me recycling, me following some path, some set of behaviors. And if I can do these things enough, then I can somehow bribe God into giving me what I want. 
It's this way of viewing the world, this way of viewing God that, that, that leads us, um, when we don't get we, what we want, to approach him as though he owed us something. We step into Psalm 50, and, and here God comes as judge. The, the, the scene in the first six verses is set up as dramatically as possible. And he comes as judge, and he takes his throne and begins to speak words of condemnation, words of judgment against his people, in which he takes, in which he takes this impulse, this, this way of seeing him, this way of understanding the universe, and he utterly decimates karma. This is not the God we worship. He is unique among all the gods in the universe, in that he cannot be served by human hands as though he needed anything. And this psalm, perhaps more clearly than any other place in Scripture, articulates for us a, a view of God, a view uh, of what it means to be his people that absolutely crushes what I, I, I would say is the default condition of the human heart, religion. The belief that somehow if I do enough good things, I can get God to do the things I need or I want him to do for me. So let's look at this text. It's really broken into three sections, um, verses 1 through 6, then verses 7 through 15, and then verses 16 to the end. I want to look together first at verses 1 through 6. And, and my hope, I want to read it to you again. I know Asa just read it beautifully for us, but I want to set it before you again, um, and I want you to, to perhaps just imagine the scene that the psalmist is setting for us. Here's what he says. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Three things I want us to see in these six verses First, the all-sufficiency of God. Um, look at what titles are given or ascribed to him. Uh, first, he is the mighty one. Here is no weak God. Here is no distant God. Here is no God who, who, who lacks strength. No, he is defined. He is described here in, in no uncertain terms. He is the one of might. Um, this, this language is loaded with the idea of, an, uh, of a general with a vast army that cannot be, de de be defeated. Anything he wants to accomplish, he may accomplish. The text sets before us a God who is not weak, he is not timid, he is not um, kind of hampered by any sort of disability that, that, that would keep him back. No, he is absolutely full of strength and might and power. He is the mighty one. He is God the Lord. This title, Lord, it's used throughout. In fact, it is Scripture's um, most, uh, most used title for God. It, it, it is a, an ascription to him of absolute 
sovereignty and absolute kingly authority. He, he is full of might and he rules the universe. He rules all peoples with absolute authority. He is the king. He is the Lord. Um, the, the text wants to establish for us right off the bat in the very, very first line. This God is not weak. He is strong. He is full of might. He accomplishes all that he sets out to accomplish. But he is not just power. He's not just authority. Look at verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. Here is beauty itself. Here is, yes, power. Here is, yes, authority. Here is might. And here is beauty, majesty, glory. The ache and the longing that you feel when you look at the mountains. It's, um, it's become extremely popular in, in photography now to, um, I, and I, there are some of my favorite images of just um, a lone human being surrounded by, by, by grandeur, by mountains. Uh, this, this person immersed in, surrounded by, swallowed up with the sheer majesty and beauty and glory in what God has made. But here, here's not just a mountain or a mountain range. Here is the perfection of beauty. And so first, see the all-sufficiency of God in his might, his strength, his authority, and his beauty. Uh, secondly, see that this God, he's not distant. Um, we might think that here's, here's this Fabrication, this idea, God may be distant, but, but we've got to live our life here in the here and now. Um, but, but look in verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silent. He's not far off, but he comes and he speaks over and over and over and over again. Um, from the rising of the sun to its setting, over and over again. This God, he's not distant, he's not silent, but he comes again and again and again, and he speaks. Um, the 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 reality of this text is twofold. The, the, the last two things I want to mention about these, these six verses. One, um, that, that he comes, and the imagery here is, is, is very, very specific. He, he's, um, it says that a, a consuming fire goes before him, that he's surrounded by a storm, and he comes to judge. Here is a king with authority, a king with power, a king with glory, a king with beauty, and he comes to make things right. In the earth. But the second thing, the, the, the last thing I want to point out in these six verses is that, that the psalmist is pointing us to, to hear something that he's declared, um, a, a judgment that he's declared. And it, it, it's not just waiting for us in the future, it actually happens day in and day out. The creation itself shouts the things, declares the things, um, echoes the things, lays before us the things that he's going to describe for us in the, in the final two sections of this chapter. In other words, um, we, don't just, we, don't, we don't really even need the Bible to see the things that he's going to describe for us in these last two stanzas. Um, you see, every time the sun rises, it declares the things he's going to say to us in these verses. 
Every time you see the mountains, you're not just supposed to see beauty. You're supposed to see and know something about the God who made those mountains. Every morning you walk outside and you see trees or you feel the heat of the sun, which I'm starting to feel right now. (laughs) These things aren't just meant to be kind of oddities in the world that we live in. They're meant to be messengers to us, um, declaring to us every single day, every hour of every day, these same essential truths at the heart of this psalm. God comes to judge. And then, and then what this psalmist is going to lay before us is, is judgment that comes against two different groups of people. And the rest of our time is going to be spent looking at those two groups of people. I want to actually start with the second one in the text, because I think this one's easy for us. This is one that makes sense to us. We think about God, or we think about judgment, we we generally associate it with the, the second group of people who are described, beginning in verse 16, a group of people the psalmist calls the wicked. Um, Look with me at those verses. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. So you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. He goes on to describe um, a kind of person who ignores the words of God. Ignores the law of God, ignores the commands of God, ignores the the fact that the whole universe shouts concerning his existence, his sovereignty, and his goodness. A whole group of people who just don't care. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. But it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. I'm going to speak the way I want to speak. I'm going to do whatever I want to do with my money and with my body. They're mine. I don't care about God. He's irrelevant to me. And the psalmist comes and declares that judgment comes against those people. And so many of you in this room, and yet this makes sense to you. This is the nature and character of religion. This is the kind of God we worship. He's a God who acquits the righteous. He gives good things to those who serve him. And he does bad things to those who ignore him. Some of you are sitting next to friends right now. And you're saying, yeah, preach it, Brian. This person is bad. I saw them do bad things. Um, They were bad. They were Watching preseason NFL, I don't know if there's any on right now, um, don't check. Uh, watching preseason NFL games during the music time, and they, I know they were bad. They're going to go and grab the wine glass and drink it all right now um, uh, during communion. They're, they're, these are the bad people. Tell them about God's judgment and his fire and his storms and warn them so they'll stop being so bad and they'll start being good like me. And so, um, and so we, we, we hear this stanza, we hear this description that makes sense to us. God punishes bad people, people who ignore him. And yet this middle section, this middle section where God speaks a word of judgment against the last people we would expect. Listen, starting in verse 7. Hear O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. 
The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So so let me set this up for you. Israel lives in the middle of of a, a whole slew of nations. And all of them, Israel included, do animal sacrifice. Some of these, uh, some of these people groups, they actually, they actually, in their religious system, they offer human sacrifices. They'll sacrifice their children or, or, or something like that. Um, they all offer sacrifices. And so um, God comes to Israel and he says, he comes to his people um, and he says, I'm not condemning you. I'm not speaking a word of judgment against you because somehow you've forgotten your sacrifices. No, you're doing it. You're coming to the temple, you're sacrificing your bulls, your goats, your birds. Um, you're doing everything that I've commanded you to do in my word. You're not you're like the, the second group of people. You're not like them. You're not ignoring what I've commanded you to do. No, every single day you, you come to the temple, you come before me, and you, you do your acts of worship. I'm not condemning you because of um, you, you've somehow forgotten to do what I've asked you to do. No, you're doing it. Every single day you're doing it. My my condemnation comes because in the midst of those sacrifices, you've forgotten something. You see, every other religious system um, surrounding Israel at the time, um, and not even just Israel, as we move into the age of Percy Jackson and and the Greek gods, um, all of the sacrifices offered are offered to gods who are hungry and evidently they like barbecue. And so the Canaanites, the Amalekites, all of these people groups, they would sacrifice their animals or, or, or their family members to these gods, did so in order to bribe them, in order to, to earn a wage for them. If I'm going to offer these sacrifices to you, um, this God, I'm giving you something you want so that you can give me something in return. Some of us show up on a Sunday morning and we drop a check in the give box and we sing some songs on a Sunday morning or we volunteer in park kids or we don't have sex with our boyfriend or our girlfriend on a Saturday night and we do so thinking that somehow earns us something with God. Look, God, I sang to you. Give me what I want. Look, God, I didn't do the thing I wanted to do. Give me what I want. Look, God, I, I gave some money to you. Give me what I want. So Israel has become like the other nations. And if they come to this God, they come to the temple, they sacrifice their bulls, they sacrifice their goats, they sacrifice their birds, but it's become religious magic for them. A way of bribing God. A way of thinking that God must be hungry and surely he likes barbecue. Which he does, but he's not hungry. And to this, God says... Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. 
for the world in all its fullness are mine. Did you hear, did you hear this word ringing out through the psalm over and over and over again? It is mine. It is mine. It is mine. Here's a God who does not get hungry. He doesn't get tired. He never needs a nap. He doesn't need your money. I know some of you think you have really great voices. But even the best of you, he doesn't need your singing. He doesn't even need your evangelism in the city. Do you know who this God is that we worship? He owns everything. Everything. The breath you just breathed to stay alive is His. Every penny in your bank account right now, every single penny is his. The the, the gifts that you have that you're going to wield tomorrow in some vocation or some job to serve people or to to serve coffee or to serve somebody, all of the, even those gifts, those gifts that you think, we, we think so intrinsically, they're ours. Guess what? They're his. All of it is his. You cannot bribe this God. You can't give him anything that's not already his. I mean, the Bible just shouts to us over and over and over again about the character and the nature and the absolute sufficiency of this God. He needs nothing from you. If he got hungry today, He wouldn't even think to mention it to you. This is the God we worship. A God who is not beholden to anyone. Because he's not lacking anything. He doesn't come to us and think, oh, if I could just get some, a collection of like 300 voices in a room. I really need somebody to sing to me today. He didn't wake up this morning and go like, yes, finally, singing. He didn't wake up this morning and go like, if I can just get 10 more dollars out of this guy, (laughs) then I will finally be able to accomplish my sovereign purposes in the universe. Oh, I hope he does it. (laughs) So excited. That was free. Absolutely, joyfully free. I uh, had a lengthy conversation um, with a man who's extremely wealthy. And we were talking about his business and his life. And the conversation turned um, to a discussion about God and religion. This man is um, decidedly agnostic. And in the conversation, he says to me, if your God is so great, why does he need me to worship him? doesn't. Oh, 
Oh, hear that this morning. You see, in this psalm, it is notable. God comes to judge those who showed up this morning to sing as though God needed your voice. There's this wonderful place in the book of Acts, Acts 17. Um, Paul was actually preaching in Greece, in Athens. Um, and and, and he's, so he's confronting Percy Jackson's whatever, um, and uh, confronting them. And, and, and he declares to them unequivocally, God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. To, to a, a culture and a city besotted with the idea that their gods needed something from them. He introduces them to a God who is absolutely free and sufficient. Now, right here, this poses for us a problem. It, because for many of us, religion is about power. It, it's about leveraging a set of behaviors, a set of ceremonies, a set of something, or maybe a sexual ethic, leveraging something in order to get God or the gods or karma or, or, or someone to do something for us that we need done. And, and what this psalm tells us, what the whole Bible is just chock full of to tell us over and over and over again, is it doesn't work that way. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need your songs. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your bulls. He doesn't need your goats. So we've suddenly, if, if our understanding of the universe, which I think is, is fairly universal, even if sometimes it's subconscious, I think it's fairly universal. If, if suddenly we find ourselves trying to make a deal with a God who owns everything, well, we've got a problem, Right? I mean, what, what do you do with a God who doesn't get hungry? You can't cook him a meal. He doesn't need it. And he's better cook than you are. Guarantee it. But what do you do with a God who doesn't need your money? He's wealthier than you are. What, what do you do with a God who, who doesn't need your singing? I mean, this is a massive problem. I mean, why are we all here? If we can't sing and get God to do something... Like, Give me a free extra cheese in my burrito today, Chipotle. If I can't get that to happen somehow by manipulating the universe through my glorious singing, which is very glorious, um, then, then and I'm faced with a problem. We're faced with a massive issue. What do we do with a God like this one? You don't ignore him. You see, one thing that people might do is, is what's laid out in the last part of that text we already read. If I can't do things to get him to do what I want, if I can't, um, if I can't obey the Bible or if I can't um, um, give enough money or obey him sexually or whatever the thing is um, in order to get what I want, then I'm going to ignore him and who cares? I'm just going to go do whatever I want, live however I want to live, act however I want to act, spend money on whatever I want to spend money on. I'm surely not going to come in here and sing in this increasingly hot room. Right? The Bible says don't do that. That's not how you approach this God. He gives us three things that we do do with this God. Look at verse 14. Offer to God 
a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So, so here's this God who's absolutely free, who, who, who owns everything. So, so what do I do in the sight of that? One, this changes the way you view everything under the sun. So, so for, for instance, we have been showered with gifts. This morning, I woke up and I drank five shots of espresso. Seriously. This jittery as can be right now. So, gift. Absolute gift. Put just a little bit of vanilla in there. Delicious. Gift. Uh, this morning I was um, upstairs in our um, attic and uh, I was sitting there um, praying and looking over Psalm 50 again and, and, and uh, my son um, snuck very, very quietly up the stairs and he snuck very quietly across um, the, the study, and then I was kind of looking the other way, kind of out the window, and he dove as hard as he could into me, wrapped his arms around me, and just hugged me. I, I have a son who loves me enough that he's willing to sneak like a ninja through the, uh, uh, up the stairs and, and across the study and tackle me. And he's just small enough now that I just have to take a step. Um, in maybe a year, when he does it, I'm going to fly through that window and die. But right now, <laughs> I have a son who loves me like that? Gift. Gift upon gift upon gift. I can pay my mortgage. Gift. I have certain skills and talents. Gift. I have a wife that's nice to me. That's breathtaking gift. When you see the absolute freedom and sufficiency of God, you begin to see all of life as a gift. Even gathering in this room to sing these songs, um, oftentimes we approach um, coming to worship as though we're coming to offer something to God, to give something to God. Here's what this psalm says. The utter uniqueness of the God we worship is that he is always glorified as the giver, never as the receiver. Even here where we sing these songs and we read these prayers, even here, even in giving of our tithes and our offerings financially, even in serving in park kids or leading a gospel community, all of these things over and over and over again, they are gifts. This, this is the character and nature of God. He's free and he is sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Therefore, everything we have, everything we have is a gift from his hand. The second thing, I want us to jump down to verse 23. It says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly. I will show the salvation of God. And, and so here's, here's what this kind of God, and understanding God in this way, here's what it does to your obedience. It, it means, and let's just take sexuality, because I'm promoting the class. I want sex to be on your brain, so, so you'll come to the class in a few weeks. Um, 
And, uh, and so here's sexuality. Um, it, it, it utterly transforms the way you think about obedience to God with regards to sex. You see, the old way of thinking, a pagan way of thinking, a religious way of thinking says, hey, I'm going to um, give to God my sexual obedience, and so I'm going to refrain from having sex outside of marriage. I'm going to refrain from being um, sexually bad um, because God said to do this. And so to offer to him, to give to him what he needs, therefore I'm going to behave a certain way sexually. What this way of viewing God does is it says, here is this gift it is amazing. What do I do with it? Now all of a sudden I come to God and I receive from him not religious instructions to somehow earn his favor. No, I come to him and I, and I find a God who freely gives wisdom. This is what this is for. And we do it with sex, we do it with money, we do it with marriage, we do it with our job, we do it with friendship, we do it with all of it. We come to him again and again and again, and we order our ways rightly. Not because God needs us to, because he's wise and he's good. And we're needy, we need wisdom, we need help. And he richly, joyfully provides it. And last... Verse 14, after offering God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Here's this um, potential right now, right? So, so I'm, I'm going to make a vow to God because I think he might want this from me. So I'm going to make a vow to him to do something for him if he'll do something for me. But what's interesting about this, this word vows, every time a, the Psalms talk about man making a vow to God, it always is followed by language similar to or identical to what we see in verse 15. In other words, the vows aren't, um, I'm going to promise God, God, if you'll just get me out of this bind, or God, if you'll just give me a spouse, or God, if you'll just get me the next promotion at work, I will give you a thousand goats. And then God gives you what you want, and then you can give God goats because he needs some goats. No, that's never what it means. It always is perform your vows to the Most High. What are those vows? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. We see it in Psalm 116, same thing. I would pay um, my vows to the Lord by what? By holding up the cup of salvation and calling upon the name of the Lord. What are these vows? What what is this promise that we're making to God to keep um, over and over and over again? God calls us to be a thankful people. He calls us people who order our ways according to his word. And he calls us to be a people who keep our vows. What are those vows? Oh, God, help. The vow is whenever you're in trouble, in all of your trouble, call upon God. That's how you're supposed to live. I mean, think about the kind of God this is. This is wonderful. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything from you. Instead, he says, I'm going to shower you with gifts. Give thanks for them. I'm going to give you instruction and wisdom on how to live your life rightly in the world before me. And most foundationally, in all of your trouble, 
Call upon me. Cry out to me. Ask for help. Ask that I might be the one who meets your needs, who cares for you, who redeems you, who saves you. How do you, how do you live with a God who doesn't need you? Cry out to him for help. The Bible says that all of us foundationally have been marked by sin and are subject to death. God, even here, even in this place where we would think, hey, if I can just sacrifice some bulls and goats, and maybe this blood will atone for my sins, um, even here, maybe here is the thing I can give to God to, to deal with my sin, and yet it is right here where the, the, the glorious message of the gospel comes, and here is a God who does not wait for us to atone for our own sins, but even here, he comes and gives Dying on the cross, spilling his blood instead of the blood of bulls and goats that we would bring, he brings the sacrifice. Oh, from beginning to end, here is a God who does not need us, but showers us with kindness, with mercy, with grace, even at the cost of his own son. This is the God we worship. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask even now that by your Spirit, you would come, that you would fill our hearts, you'd fill our lives with gratitude, you'd fill our lives with with just the sheer joy of what it means to be the, the people who belong to a God like this. A God who's not waiting on us to figure stuff out, who's not um, kind of a slave master driving us to accomplish something for you, but a God who comes and freely gives, sufficiently provides, who cares for us, who rescues us, who speaks to us, who leads us. God, fill us with the kind of joy, the kind of thankfulness that comes from being a people who know you this way. Thank you for Jesus that you've provided for us supremely in the body and the blood of your son. May all of our lives be marked by the sheer gratitude and joy of being a people who've been rescued, who've been saved, who've been loved. In your name we pray, amen.